0: All right, we're back in 2020 with the Digital Healthcare Podcast. I am, I've am. i taken the month of January to really think about the podcast and try to decide what I want to focus on for the year. And the biggest thing that came through in that thought exercise was leadership. And leadership, not just if you're a CEO of a company, but leaders across all levels, all facets of, of people that work in healthcare and no better way to kick off this year with a great multifaceted guest, uh, Eric or Russo. Um, he is the CEO of Diameter Health. Eric, thanks so much for joining.
1: Hey, Brian. Great to be here today. Thanks for having me.
0: So we're going to kick off. It might appear out of left field, but hopefully we'll bring it back to healthcare at some point. But you're, an, you're a big time rower growing up. And I wanted to, to talk about the leadership and the principles that you learn in the sport Um, And I I figured it'd be good to kick off. When did you get into rowing and how did that come to come to be a part of your life? Sure.
1: So I actually had the benefit of growing up on a small pond where I had a rowboat. I'm not sure if that um, helped me develop into uh, becoming a college oarsman, but I was really fortunate to um, have been exposed to the sport my freshman year at a college called Trinity College here in Hartford, Connecticut, um, where I had this fantastic and enthusiastic coach named Hank Fox. And and his passion and his competitive spirit were just infectious. So I was just attracted to rowing, I think, from the beginning, because it truly is the ultimate team sport. Um, and competitive rowing is something I always wanted to do. So um, I very much enjoyed rowing all four years throughout Trinity and college, and then had the honor and opportunity to go on and, and, and earn a seat on the U.S. national team a couple years um, thereafter. So um, I still row competitively today with a bunch of older masters men but many of the relationships I've had over the years I'm I'm still very close with uh, even my college oarsmen from over 30 years ago.
0: I should have guessed that it was a coach or someone some one individual that that tipped you off to the sport that's the same for me I my (laughs) sport is ice hockey and yeah a similar experience where one person got me into it and It's crazy how just one person can have such a big impact and life shape. Like, imagine if you hadn't met that person, right? Your life would look totally different.
1: Without question. And and I guess the only thing I'd add to that is, you know, trying to pay it back. Um, Just over a decade ago, um, some other parents in town, I live in a town called Avon, Connecticut. We actually um, founded a rowing program for the local public high school, which I then went on to coach um, the girls squad for the next 10 years. And uh, today it has over 100 athletes every fall and every spring. Um, and it's just been a blast to uh, be part of that startup But I often affectionately refer to it as my most demanding uh, and often most rewarding startup experience.
0: That's fantastic. So maybe give it a little bit of background. You mentioned the ultimate team sport. I pull most of my knowledge of rowing from Boys on the Boat, a great book if you haven't read. It's, yeah. it's a fantastic read. So maybe just give some background into rowing. And why do you say it's such a team sport? And just talk about some of the challenges that go into the sport.
1: Yeah. So I often joke, the reason I ended up in rowing is because I wasn't coordinated enough like you to play hockey or to be uh, football or basketball or baseball, though I loved a lot of those sports as well. Um, But unlike other sports, it's a completely shared experience. I mean, there's no timeouts. There's no substitutions. When you're in a boat, when you're in a race, it's from start to finish. All the athletes in that boat, whether it's a single, a double, a four, a quad, or an eight, have to work together. and And it looks so graceful when watching it, but tremendous amount of power is being exerted. And then the way one recovers uh, is just as important in terms of overall boat speed and essentially not slowing the boat down. Um, so I just and, and if you think of doing all this in a boat that can be less than a foot wide, um, it's very unstable. And so boat speed. And boat stability are, are directly correlated to each other. Uh, and so, having the power application, the recovery, the timing, the catches, uh, the recovery, all of that done in synchrony is critical. Uh, to what I often coach my kids is saying, you know, the crews with the most power are not always the crews that win the race. And, and uh, a famous boat builder that, that you're familiar with from reading The Boys in the Boat, Stanley Pocock, often said, and I think this is true in rowing, and I try to apply this here at Diameter. He often said that the way power is applied is more important than how much power is applied. And so with that adage, I've always tried to make sure that every ounce, every watt, every dollar we spend as a company or in a crew race is exerted wisely and efficiently to achieve the desired result.
0: So you say all this looking back on your, your, your own career, how much of these principles did you recognize in real time? Cause I know with my hockey career, I lived it, I knew it was a good thing, a powerful thing in my life, but it really took some some time in between when I stopped paying competitively and and when I started my career to be like, "Oh, I learned this. I I know how to operate in a team because I've I've done this before my whole life on that in the ice rink." Was it similar experience for you?
1: It really was. I think, you know, you know, was it Mark Twain? I often think he said, "You know, when I was 13, I couldn't stand to be around my old man cuz I felt like I had to explain everything to him. And then by the time I was 15, I was amazed at how much he learned in two years. And so I feel like you learn a lot looking back. And I think just the principles of teamwork and discipline and taking on fears and and self-doubt and then accomplishing things that you weren't sure you could um, really just builds into not only self-esteem and confidence, but more than anything, I know it's trite, but the power of the team. For me, as I look back at my life, and I'm 55 now, I, I look at uh, some of the most challenging tasks I've ever taken on. I always go back to earning a seat in a particular crew or on the U.S. team or being in races that were just so demanding, both mentally and physically. Um, and I feel like not that founding or, or scaling a company is easy by any means, um, because it isn't, but the overall principles of you know teamwork, trust, shared vision, shared goals, and of course, hard work, I think apply just as much in in company building as they do in competitive sports.
0: Can you talk about the mental side of rowing? Because I, I imagine that has to be the hardest part you do in this monotonous activity over and over again and trying to do it better and slightly better each time. It's not an easy task and then when you add the team element, it becomes a really, really difficult task. Is that a fair characterization? of the mental side of it?
1: Yeah, totally fair. And then, you know, obviously coupling that with the physiology, I mean, in a lot of ways, the the physiology of a rowing race, and there are different races, there's what are called sprint races, which are 2,000 meters long, depending on the boat, um, can be anywhere from, say, six minutes or, or a little longer um, of very high intensity output to uh, what are called head races, like the head of the Charles or other longer races, which can be three miles long. Um, but rowing literally uses every muscle in the body, and it, it attacks your, your cardiopulmonary system, I think, like no other sport. Uh, in fact, some of the highest lactic acid levels ever measured were in, in the quadriceps of rowers. So I share that because I think a big part of the mental isn't just focusing on the good technique, but frankly, dealing with discomfort or pain. I try not to focus on that, but going into what some rowers call the pain cave and then managing that throughout a multi-minute or you know, 15, 20 minute race. Um, I think that requires tremendous mental and, and also physical toughness. But in the end. For those of you,
0: oops, sorry, for those of you that don't know, lactic acid just equates directly to pain <laughs> when you're working out.
1: It's when your muscles burn and because they don't have enough oxygen and the physiology of a rowing race is almost inverted in that your first 30 strokes are very high, very anaerobic. So you build up all this lactic acid in the first 60 seconds, and then you essentially carry that and buffer that through the balance of the race, at which point you then sprint further at the end. And so if you look at the physiology of it, in some ways it makes no sense, but being within a foot of another crew or or five boats across is certainly a mental game in terms of when crews make particular moves uh, at different portions of the race. At the end of the day, you want to be the first bow ball to cross the finish line, and it takes tremendous teamwork, effort and discipline training to do that.
0: So fast forward and then to the end of your rowing career, was it something that just the physicalness and the competition, was it something that you'd kind of reached the end of your career in that and had to start to figure out what was next or how did that play out? Yeah,
1: I think having been involved with it for, gosh, almost 10 years, you know, between the collegiate and then, you know, afterwards at at, at the U.S. team level and training throughout the year, I think there's a point where, you know, I don't want to say real life sets in. Um, in my time, there was talk of uh, lightweight rowing becoming an Olympic event, which it since has. But um, that wasn't the case. In 92, there was talk of it becoming a, a lightweight event at the Barcelona Olympics. Um, but anyway, there were a lot of things to stay going, but there are also reasons to kind of move on, not the least of which was, you know, meeting the love of my life, getting engaged and, and starting a career and family. So. Um, having said that i know many people that have made the commitment and have done very well and uh, continue to do well dedicating themselves fully to uh, such a demanding sport at the highest level
0: so when you got to the end of your rowing career and you started to think about your career was healthcare an obvious choice Did you had a background there or how did that how did healthcare become the point of focus
1: yeah. So I've always been intrigued. I was a biomedical engineering major undergrad uh, with mechanical engineering concentration. So I've always been fascinated by the intersection of technology, uh, engineering, and healthcare. So I think that was just sort of a natural area that I gravitated towards. Um, I had the opportunity to work at Hartford Healthcare for a number of years and had great exposure to a, a myriad of different clinicians and researchers and, and you know, technologies and vendors. And, and that really, I think, instilled just a, a, a conviction that this was a field that I wanted to devote my professional life to.
0: Was there any void when you gave up rowing? Because I know when I gave up competitive hockey, and and even really when I achieved a goal that I've worked hard at for a long time, you get to that other side of that, and it's almost, it's a somewhat a blank slate, and you're trying to figure out what's next. It's kind of a difficult place to be because you, especially if you're so focused and motivated, and and heads down, trying to achieve something, it, finding out what's next sometimes is difficult.
1: Without question, and having spent so much of your your waking days, you know, training and competing and traveling, um, is a big part of your routine. So there was definitely a void, but I tried to just essentially redirect it into other interests. Um, and then about ten years later, I got back into. you know, competitive rowing at a master's level based on our age groups and and continue to do that today, as I mentioned. Um, But I think everyone goes through that in their own way. And and it's certainly, you know, a transition that requires adjustment. Um, I like to say today, I, I wake up and I get to still work with a really fantastic high performing team every day. And so I still have some of that same thrill and adrenaline. It comes from competitive sport, but I like to also say there's absolutely no correlation to my VO2 max and uh, how well how well we can do as a company. So I like that I like that correlation or that lack thereof.
0: Yeah, less pain involved trying to get to a good place. Yeah, <laughs> I, I completely empathize empathize with that. So when you when you talk about moving from a rowing, where it's a legit competitive game, for lack of a better word. And then you go to the corporate environment, it's, there's a whole bunch of different principles and you're still trying to be successful. You're still trying to win, but it's not as clear cut and quantifiable. So how did you, did you set clear goals or how did you make that transition and, and kind of start working up the corporate ladder, or whatever you decide to focus your career on?
1: Yeah. Um, so I guess I would say, you know, in rowing, I mentioned there's the single, the double, the four, the eight, um, I've tended to row more in the team boats. And so I think the thing I've always enjoyed was sort of the team win. And you don't always win, of course, but the effort to win as a team is always much more rewarding to me than than just being the individual in the single. So I think the first thing is as I related to not just my time at Hartford Healthcare, um, but also in building companies was all about the team and, and how do we innovate? How do we listen to the market? How do we essentially create a culture that supports what, you know, we call an idea meritocracy, where really the best ideas win. Um, And then, you know, knowing it's okay to fail as long as we learn from that. Um, So I think I've been fortunate to have either recruited or been recruited or just been able to be in boats, quote unquote, that have other great complementary skill sets and people on the team with me. But the one thing we had in common was truly a shared vision of making a meaningful impact.
0: So maybe highlight your career and, and get us up to your current role and talk about how your career progressed, some of the different spots you jumped to and, and just how it played out.
1: Okay, sure. Um, so after graduating, I uh, ended up doing a master's program uh, also in Hartford at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, now part of Trinity Health, um, where I was a biomedical engineer and got great exposure to lots of different technologies and vendors and teams and and functional areas of a hospital. Um, I was still training and competitively rowing through those years. Um, And then after that, came back and had an opportunity in a leadership role at Hartford Hospital, where I was at for, um, gosh, over 12 years and and had a lot of opportunity to see innovation in all different facets. In fact, that was kind of the incubation laboratory, if you will, where I started my first company, uh, a company called Premise, which focused on optimizing patient flow, patient throughput. Um, And this is circa 1999, um, where we innovated uh, what I would call an air traffic control tower for bed management and patient placement, but it had a very clinical focus to the way we went about doing that. And uh, that company grew. We had amazing partners and clients like Yale New Haven Health and partners in Mass General and the Cleveland Clinic and MD Anderson, UCSF and a whole bunch of others that were our partners in that journey. And so I just loved, you know, not every day, but I loved the uh, the thrill and the hair on fire world of of scaling a company, building a team. And ultimately, I joke, quote unquote, going to the dark side of taking on venture capital, but finding the right partners and investors to really accelerate and fuel that growth Uh, which ultimately resulted in our company being acquired by then uh, what was called Eclipsis, which was a a top-tier electronic health record vendor and uh, was proud to be part of Eclipsis. We had many shared customers, um, and that was a great journey, which, as you may know, Eclipsis ultimately became part of Allscripts. During that time at Eclipsis, I had the great pleasure of meeting so many wonderful people and working with them One of them is uh, now my partner and co-founder, John Damore, uh, who came into the Eclipsis realm and then stayed for a bit during the Allscripts chapter as well. And we worked very closely together on taking what we had built Premise in terms of optimizing throughput and then integrating that with another best-of-breed great company called EPSI, which is still out there today uh, in terms of the best-of-breed cost accounting solution and then merging that essentially with an in-house built clinical analytics solution for overall what we call performance management.
0: Hey, Eric, just to pause right there. Um, so when you talked about moving into entrepreneurship and creating your own company, was that something that had been in the back of your mind and you had been thinking about for a while, or did it just naturally progress there?
1: Um, much like my desire to try rowing, that was always in the back of my mind as well. And I should give credit to my co-founder of Premise is a long time a friend and still a very dear friend named Joe Adam. We actually met in high school chemistry. We ended up both going to Trinity together, always stayed in touch, and he was sort of the whiz computer developer and, and mathematician, and I was more of a systems engineer. And, and so together, we, uh, we built uh, the foundations of what ultimately became a company that, that had great impact in, in the world of patient flow across the country and even internationally.
0: What was what is there any differences you can highlight in the climate back then when you were starting your first company versus now?
1: Yeah, there are a lot. Um, I would say there's a lot less friction today in terms of starting a company just by virtue of things like the cloud and hosting and SaaS and collaboration tools like GoToMeeting and Dropbox and SharePoint, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I would also say the the velocity at which the market is moving today is so much faster which you know i say it's a darwinian world and so i think the need to be just nimble and responsive and keeping your finger on the pulse of not just the market today but where it's headed is so critical i look back then and you know that was a client server technology at the beginning we ultimately migrated it to the web uh, but we had to buy servers and we had to have like sql licenses from microsoft and today We do so much more using open source technology and and just collaboration tools that we can be a a much faster growing distributed company than we could back in the days of premise.
0: So in some ways, it's a lot easier. In other ways, it's a lot harder just because the competition is so much more fierce nowadays versus... And everything changes a whole lot faster. Exactly. Gotcha. So then um, as you... When you say um, you started the company uh, and you had support from another company, does that mean did you did you found it on your own or did you found it with the support of another company in in inside of their corporate environment?
1: Yeah. So with respect to the premise chapter, we did found it on our own. It was actually a pre-existing, more of I'd say a services company where we had done a lot of interesting work with leading physician researchers and cardiologists and published uh, very progressive papers and presented at national conferences. But I think we quickly realized that that sort of services model, while certainly can be exciting and rewarding, wasn't something that we felt could have the scale we wanted to have and didn't really leverage time the way a product-based company could. And so we focused our efforts on becoming a product company. Candidly, I'd love to tell you all we had this great insight and genius that the world needed a better patient flow solution. But the truth is, um, Hartford Hospital back then had engaged PricewaterhouseCoopers to do a massive multi-year, multi-million dollar re-engineering engagement. The number one identified need that came out of that was to find, build, or buy technology that could essentially streamline patient flow through the organization and do so with a much more clinically focused than other products around the market at the time or still on the market today that were more what I'd call bed-centric, in other words, Is the bed empty or occupied? Is it clean or dirty? We would take that to a whole nother level by identifying, does the patient need a negative pressure room? Does the patient need cardiac monitors? In inner city hospitals, there would actually be a need to identify gang affiliations so you don't put rival gang members in a semi-private room where that could result in undesired consequences among the patients or their visitors. So there are a lot of subtleties that you just don't know until you're in the environment. And it was because Hartford HealthCare had that need, we actually believed we could build, frankly, a new mousetrap, not even a better mousetrap, to address those needs. And, and Hartford Hospital gave us the go-ahead and let us put together a prototype, which they then green-lighted, and that became the foundation of what what premise was in terms of a patient-flow solution.
0: That's fantastic. And you'd probably say, similar to that that partnership, I think the climate nowadays from what I know is very similar where a lot of the entrepreneurs that are starting companies still have to partner with very large established players. That's the easiest way to get inside the business model of healthcare. Would you would you say that's still true and yeah. is an effective method for starting a successful company?
1: I think it is. I'm not saying it's the only way to do it, but I think having that scar tissue and that credibility, that experience, that insight is so vital because, you know, as much as people say healthcare is different, it really is different. And we've seen a lot of big companies come and go and try and make a mark in healthcare and and several years later, cry uncle. And, and now some of them are coming back. And I do think there's a great opportunity for disruption through innovation and different perspectives on how to deliver healthcare today. But I do think having that experience was foundational Um to building a successful company in healthcare.
0: As you moved into these leadership positions, did you feel like you were fully prepared with the skills and the perspective you needed, or did you do a lot of learning on the fly?
1: Um, yeah, definitely the latter. I try to read a lot. I try to seek out people that I know, trust, and respect that that have done it before or that have complementary skill sets, and I continue to do that today. Um, I always say, I think ignorance and arrogance are a very dangerous combo. So I try not to be too ignorant, but there's so much to know and learn. And, and I definitely think while we're confident and we're uh, ambitious, I think we also have a, a, an appropriate sense of humility and knowing that sort of, you know, all of us are smarter than any of us. And not that everything's a group think, but there are times where you want to make sure you get contrarian ideas to, again, going back to that you know, idea meritocracy to have the best ideas that win.
0: And and thinking about your rowing career, did, I know for me, it, I, they look, they were almost two completely separate worlds, my hockey career and then my, my corporate career. And at some point I, when I became a, uh, put in a leadership position, I started to connect the dots a whole lot more and recognize the skills and the principles I've learned in hockey. Did you ever have that type of moment where you, you were able to recognize the value of rowing and the team team um camaraderie and the team skills that you learned?
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And and I, I still try to leverage that or, or benefit from that today. And and to the extent I get to still do it in a rowing shell in the spring and summer and fall, um, I still enjoy doing that with my uh now fifty-five to sixty-year-old age group, which uh I will proudly say we've we've won our division the last five years at Masters National. So we're not going there this summer because it's in Oakland, California. It's too far a trip for our club and our trailer. But uh, we're hoping to come back and, and continue to keep that streak going. So I feel like I get the best of both worlds, both at work and on the water.
0: Side note, Eric's not that competitive, despite what he, what he just said. <laughs> yeah. I just
1: throw amazing beasts. And, uh... <laughs>
0: So, so then picking back up, um, you were acquired and, and eventually landed at Allscripts. And did you keep a position there and work for Allscripts for a time?
1: I did. So I stayed under my role as essentially the general manager of the patient flow business unit um, and wanted to see a, a major release that we've been working on um, deployed, particularly to one of our biggest strategic customers in Singapore, actually, SingHealth, um, which today is a 2,000 bed standalone hospital was a really progressive partner that had also integrated at that time um, innovative RFID technology that not only showed patient location, but could also manage and measure patient core temperature. So it's almost uncanny now with the coronavirus and all the news about that. But back then, Singapore was the epicenter of the SARS outbreak. And so they were quite innovative in how they responded to uh, managing outbreaks like that. And and part of our technology in this Innovative RFID technology was part of managing that.
0: That's great. And then just continue with your career, because I, I want I do, or we we'll I guess get us up to when you became CEO and founded Diameter Health.
1: Yeah. So I had always stayed in touch with uh, John Demore, and he had gone off and done some consulting and had done quite a bit of work around the interoperability standard. And back in 2000, late 2013, 2014. Um, He wanted to show me some of the work he was doing, and I actually took a drive up to his home in Wellesley, along with another colleague who's now on our board, Mark Anderson, the former CIO of Yale New Haven Health System and Catholic Health Initiatives and a number of other progressive health systems, to see what he too thought of what I thought was the kernel of an idea that could be an interesting product, but not yet a company. And John and I had worked together, as I mentioned, and so together we sort of made a pact to like, let's see what this can become. And so together, we bootstrapped what's now Diameter for the first two plus years, which frankly was not a lot of fun. I have three kids and two were in college at the time, um, but we believed in what we were doing. We got our first uh, client uh, in 2016. It uh, was actually a very progressive health information exchange in Kansas called CAHIN, the Kansas Health Information uh, System. And, and I felt like Tom Hanks in the movie Big, you know, when he got his first paycheck and so $147, but anyway, that was enough to, uh, to give us some working capital to continue to invest and bring on a chief data scientist and to bring on a few more folks. And at that point, I, we felt it was the right time to go back to some of my prior investors in premise um, and to take a modest amount of capital uh, to further scale the company, which we did. And we further scaled the company over the next two years considerably. And earlier, uh, just about a year ago today we closed uh, a series A1 round that was led by Optum Ventures, which we're very proud to be a part of and part of that family, uh, along with the current syndicate that was in our our initial seed round, or what we call the series A. So that kind of brings us up to today.
0: I know raising money is not easy, so congrats on that. Um, What was the, back when you first had that, that meeting or that summit, what was the thought of the problem you were trying to solve or what was the core driver behind the company?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. It's a great question. So back then, there was a big focus on looking at um, algorithms and ways to identify patients at risk for 30-day readmission. And at that time, we had an amazingly accurate algorithm that could identify patients that had risk of 30-day readmission. We had a C statistic that was north of 0.8, which is quite high in terms of its predictive capability. The problem was there are probably 150 other companies and still today that have algorithms and quote unquote solutions to look at 30 day readmissions. And so that's always hard when you're in a noisy space. So we stepped back, we asked ourselves, well, why is it that we had such an accurate algorithm and what is it that we could do that differentiates us from being one of 150 other vendors that do the same thing or claim to do the same thing? The answer to that question was we were really good at taking dirty, clinical data and normalizing it and enriching it and making it useful that we could have a better predictive algorithm. So that was really a pivotal moment in Diameter Health's evolution, where we sort of did pivot, in fact, and focus more on data quality. And that's really when we then went after a target market um, health information exchanges, which we recognize is not a massive or rapidly growing market, but we felt and still believe that that was absolutely and is the right market to have started to build and continue to serve uh, as we go there. Because they have such a broad array of different sets of clinical data, not just from Epic and Cerner and McKesson and Athena, but literally hundreds of certified electronic health records. And that's really important. We often joke when uh, Willie Willie Sutton was asked, well, why did you rob banks? And his answer was simply, well, that's because where the money is. And we went to HIEs because that's where the data was.
0: That makes total sense. What, when you say dirty data, can you give a definition of what that, what dirty data might look like?
1: Yeah. So I have to give credit to um, our, our VP of marketing, Tom Gaither, uh, who, who coined this term clinical data disorder. And so one of the nice things about Diameter is that we were spawned in a post-meaningful use world. So as a country, we've you know, invested over $30 billion to adopt electronic health records so all this data is being collected. It's being digitized, but it's not necessarily clean. And, and you know examples of what we mean by dirty data disorder is that you can have multiple different units or syntax for something like a platelet count, where it could be K per microliter or 10, up, you know, up arrow, 3 per microliter, 1,000 per microliter. All of these mean the same thing, but to a computer, the number K could be interpreted as degrees Kelvin, not 1,000. Or... You might enter a person's weight in kilograms versus pounds. And when you do a BMI conversion, then that can give you a very different answer, which in turn can be used to calculate drug levels and, and so forth. So there's just such a broad array of, of units in variation, what we call semantic interoperability. And when you look at like different libraries for documenting conditions like congestive heart failure, or different type of medications like Lipitor, Torvastatin. These all can have literally hundreds of different codes that all mean the same thing. So what we try to do at Diameter is we have this analogy. It's not carbon friendly, but all this data is digital, but we still think of it as like digital crude oil. And we think a big part of the Diameter Value Prop is how we are serving essentially as that refinery that turns that digital crude oil into high octane fuel that can serve both markets upstream and downstream uh, to us. For example, population health, analytics, um, payers like HEDIS, STARS, gaps in care, risk adjustment, things like that.
0: Yep. And then add in, I'm sure, machine learning and all the latest buzzwords. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated why. I started a machine learning project probably two years ago, and the biggest realization was how, Big of a mess the data was. It was all over the place and not uniform and clean. Is you talked about the uniformity of it? Is the simple location of the data a big problem you run into where it's just stored all over the place?
1: Yeah, so that's a part of the problem. That's actually a big value proposition of HIES, where they've got the data. You know, going back to the crude oil analogy, it could be in tanks, it could be on trucks. Um, we kind of look at the market in a very broad generic fashion, what we call like pipe vendors. And I say that with affection, but companies that actually aggregate and move data from point A to point B, but don't really do a whole lot with it. Part of what I mentioned Diameter offers is that middleware, if you will, of the refinery, what we call nerdifying the data. We actually are so nerdy that we actually have an acronym for the word nerds. It stands for normalize, enrich, reorganize, deduplicate, and summarize. So that's how we get nerds. But Those five things are really important to do to the data for any of the downstream application uses, which carrying that carbon analogy, those are the cars. They could be Ferraris, Fords, Chevys, mopeds, or jet engines. All of them need high octane fuel. None of them can run on crude oil.
0: Do you find this uh, easy sell or hard sell for your clients that you're trying to serve? Because I'm always fascinated in healthcare at the end of the day, like I'm in pharmaceuticals and we're literally a data company. It's the data associated with the products that really make the difference. But it still seems like we're so product centric or I'm sure hospitals have their own priorities they focus on. And I don't, I still don't feel like across the board, as a general statement, people within healthcare understand the power of data.
1: Yeah, and I agree with that in general. I think there's certainly like a bell curve of of understanding or recognition or adoption. Um, I think a lot of us would like to have one throat to choke, where you have one vendor, whether it be your EHR or a data analytics partner or whoever, that can kind of be that silver bullet solution. Um, And I think people are starting to realize that you know the old adage of "gigo," you know, garbage in, garbage out, still applies even today in 2020 in a world of artificial intelligence and machine learning. So I think people recognize the quality of clean clinical data, we think, is the next frontier. I think payers and others have squeezed as much juice out of the claims data as can be squeezed, but the new frontier is really getting into the rich clinical data set where you can then use that to to measure electronic clinical quality measures, which, again, plug for the team, we have more certified ambulatory eCQMs than any other vendor combined. And that's really important when you're looking at accurate numerators, accurate denominators, how can that data be used to support standard supplemental data for downstream analyses? Super important. And
0: um, in fact, you know, Effectively, what you're saying is you need domain experts and as well as IT professionals, and that's definitely something I've realized. You have to have a combination of both to be successful. Otherwise, you just fall short in getting to the outcomes you want.
1: Absolutely, and, and we have a whole informatics team led by John Damore, Um Who's one of a handful of people that understands this thousand-page interoperability standard, you know, better than most people on the planet. So we often joke that's a great business model: have a, a business partner co-author a really important but really complex standard, then go build a company to actually help implement that standard. Um, but I, I think the other thing I would just say, and we're super excited about evolving standards, a lot of hype around. FIRE FHIR and we're gonna be showing some really cool fire capabilities with HIMS in a couple of weeks. But I think a lot of people we've spoken with think that fire by itself is like a silver bullet solution to what we solve at diameter, and it, it isn't. And in fact, if you talk to Graham, the founder of FIRE, he would say the same. We view today's world their pipes flowing dirty water, dirty, dirty crude oil, if you will. We look at fire as a much better standard that's gonna frankly widen the pipes considerably, put more water pressure behind it but actually flow more quote unquote dirty data so we feel like evolving standards like that frankly further amplify the value proposition that diameter offers its customers
0: can you explain fire is it a data protocol or data standard something like yeah, that yeah
1: it's an evolving standard you know from HL7 that's going to um, be a much more efficient way to extract clinical data uh, in totality or in bulk or particular sections of of, of a clinical document so for example in the documents we process today they have many different sections like labs meds vital signs problems things like that and so fire will be a, a much is a much better way to exchange data uh, and we're excited as more and more vendors and EHRs are adopting that standard but we also have that with an asterisk that you still need to have a, a solution in place to make sure that data is normalized and enriched and deduplicated. Um,
0: has has the company started to think about wearables or biometrics or any of those new kind of new ways of collecting data?
1: We have thought about that. We sort of look at those vendors as providing that data through the EHR or through other interfaces into these summary documents, these continuity of care documents or CCDAs. So we're starting to see more of that type data um coming through and we think that's a another exciting frontier. But we're also very disciplined about not trying to go out and boil the ocean uh, as we look to expand into new markets. Um, So today we serve health information exchanges. We're very honored to have a contract with our Veterans Administration. Uh, We've licensed our core engine to other healthcare IT vendors. Uh, And then this past year, we've been focusing on uh, leveraging what we do into the payer market, um, which we think is really an exciting opportunity Ultimately, not in 2020, but we'd love to venture more into your space as well, and that we think what we do with normalizing disparate data across multiple electronic health vendors for life science and pharma is also of great value. But we want to make Absolutely. Sure we run before we, we, you know, we walk before we run.
0: Yeah, it's, there, there's too much in healthcare to do it all. That's, that's for dang sure. Um, so you, we've kind of highlighted your, your career up to this point. Can you talk, how has your leadership evolved over the years? And I guess even taking a step back from there, how do you even think about your role as the leader of these different companies?
1: Yeah, no, great question. Um, You know, I think the foundational tenets that I've always ascribed to of leadership and teamwork really haven't changed over the last 30 years. They've essentially just been reinforced. Um, You know, I think if I were to think of it in five buckets, Obviously communication, you know communicating the vision, the impact of the vision. Why is our work important? You know really just choosing to do what I call meaningful work. Um, second, and this is trite, but so true, you know always recruit and retain great talent and, and along the way, build meaningful, fun relationships uh, across your team. That includes your board, your investors, obviously your customers and your partners, but just being authentic and building trust among all those different constituents. You know, third. Actually, we just had an all-company meeting last week, and um, I bought everyone in the company and, and uh, a book by a guy Ray Dalio, who has a big hedge fund. But um, but basically, he talks. It's called Principles, and in it, he talks a lot about how do you create a culture of what he calls radical truth and transparency, and and also making what he calls believability weighted decisions. So, I think through our weekly short standups are what we use objectives and key results to measure our goals on a quarterly basis. We display our key performance indicators and dashboards across the organization. And we have a number of open forums um, just to do all of that in terms of radical transparency. Uh, and then the last two is just building a culture where you know it's important to innovate and to push the envelope, um, but it's also OK to fail as long as we learn from those failures. And going back to the crew analogy, the final fifth dimension is you know, you just have to get and stay in sync, and recognize that we got a bunch of type A players here, which is great. We're not always going to agree, but recognize how do we get beyond disagreements and and sort of you know go forward in sync. So, I think that's what has been really reinforced to me over the years. Um,
0: going back to your the meritocracy or the best idea bringing or winning out, I imagine that's hard as a leader to actually implement. Because at the end of the day, you are the person that has the responsibility for leading the company. And ultimately, you could make the decision on your own. How do you go about actually bringing that idea into your company and making it stick?
1: Yeah, I think in general, we're pretty collaborative. And I'd say in most instances, we we align on things based on the data we bring forward to support that recommendation. That's not always the case. So there are times... For right or wrong, you have to play Solomon and just say, you know what, I know we don't all agree, but this is what we're going to do. This is why. And then obviously, if, if that was a bad decision, you don't want to make a bunch of them. But if you have to change, you change. Um, but I think in general, developed a skill of knowing how to work and communicate with very different perspectives and different personalities. You know, one of the fun things we've done, I'll just quickly share, is that we have everyone who comes into our company, including our board, has taken this short Myers-Briggs personality profile test, and then we had fun um, mapping everyone to a particular Star Wars character. And there's no good or bad profiles, but it was really interesting to share last week across the company, here's the national distribution of of personality profiles across all humans, and here's where we fit at diameter. And we were in some cases almost the exact opposite, but I think that's part of the X factor that makes um, this a
0: fun place to work at. Do you mind sharing your, your character? Oh, Darth Vader.
1: You had to ask. No, I'm not Darth Vader. I will share that my uh, my partner was Emperor Palpatine, John Demore and yes, my character was Qui-Gon Jinn. So okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I don't know what um, I would do if it came out to Darth Vader. That would be a tough pill to swallow.
1: Yeah, we have a couple of those too. But again, they're not good or bad. They just map them to very logical, goal-oriented uh, characteristics, like the Emperor and Darth Vader were as well.
0: Sure. One one more question on this topic. Do you find, do you have any difficulty with when you ask a question, what do you think, uh, getting an honest answer? Because sometimes being the boss, people aren't always willing to speak up or put their ideas out there. Have you, have you run into that? And how have you combated that?
1: Behavior? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say definitely among my senior management team. No, it's like, it's not a hierarchy and people absolutely say what they think. And they'll say, I think that's a really stupid idea or whatnot. That's great. I always say I want to hear what I need to hear, not what, what people think I want to hear. Um, I've tried my best to just be authentic and you know, sort of non-threatening in a way to like just always get what people really think. But knowing that may not always happen, we also try and do that through anonymous surveys or other means in which people can communicate. Um, but I do recognize there can certainly be a Hawthorne effect in who's asking the question and in what environment the question's being asked.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, great. I th- I th- we've covered a lot. Um, is there anything else with diameter health that maybe we missed or um, you want to highlight?
1: Um, I'm sure this is a wonderful opportunity, I would say. I guess I'll leave you with, um, you know, you talk about just goal setting. Somebody once said, easy decisions, hard life, hard decisions, easy life. I tried to communicate that to my own kids. Um, I think at diameter, we really do try to think big. I'll leave you with this. We continue to think big is one of my Board member Sarah London from Optum Ventures likes to say, quote, incrementalism sucks. I think that's actually on her webpage at Optum Ventures. But I think it's just been a blast. It's not always perfect. It's not always easy. But the power of this team with a shared vision and goal has been really exciting. And even though my VO2 isn't quite as high as it used to be, it's still thrilling to be part of part of this organization. And we're going to be um, at the HIMSS conference. Uh, in a few weeks and so if anybody is interested in learning more we're going to be at booth number 7461 and we'd love to tell more about what we do at diameter down in orlando
0: fantastic well thanks so much again for joining eric and having a, a fun conversation about both rowing and and leadership and your company it's been interesting to see them all kind of come together and um, hear your perspective on them all so i really appreciate you sharing
1: well, thank you so much for making time and having me on today, Brian. Great to meet you, and uh, look forward to getting back down to Indianapolis. And my favorite pancake house is Charlie Brown, so that's right. Really All right. Me.
0: So yeah, uh, maybe you'll have to t- you'll have to take me out, teach me how to row. I've never done yeah. it before, so maybe maybe sometime I can uh, dip my toe in the water.
1: We'd love to do that right there at Eagle Creek. Thanks so much. All like right, Eagle sounds Creek.
0: good. Take take care, Eric. We'll talk thank to you great. soon. You bet. Thanks, Brian.